All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you again for another opportunity, another chance to gather together as your children and to learn your word. We ask, Father, that you open our eyes, that you keep us humble, and that you give us more and more faith to believe and receive the things that you're clearly stating in your word. We thank you, Father, most of all for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to become one of us, to become true humanity, so he could truly take our place on the cross. Help us, Father, never be familiar with this, and that he is the reason we gather together, and he is the reason we continue to live. We thank you for all these things and all these truths. Please bless this time together in your word. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 84. On Sunday, we saw the simplicity and purity of the Lord's ministry while He was on earth. And what a relief it is, if you think about it, to find out that the Lord had saving us as His top priority. I mean, we all know that and we take that for granted, right? But if you think about the directions he could have gone in, if you think about the distractions that he had throughout the years, nothing else distracted him from his mission of saving us. Nothing. And he had way more distractions than you think you have when you think you have a lot. In life... For example, we often see people that uh, will come to our aid. Uh, Maybe we're in a jam, maybe we need some help, and somebody steps forward and says, oh, I'll help you with that. But then after time or distractions, they kind of fade away. And right after you started relying on that person to be there, they're no longer there for you. But not the case with Jesus Christ. He came to save us. He followed through on that sole purpose, never becoming distracted, never leaving our side, so to speak. Perfect faithfulness, right? He didn't get distracted by maturity issues in his people, for example, or lack thereof. He just kept asking them to have more faith. Jesus didn't follow the whims of the crowds who wanted a Messiah right now to rescue them from Rome and create an earthly kingdom, forgetting that the cross was necessary. He didn't get distracted by that, though, even though it would have been an easy road to take, wouldn't it? You mean I could be king right now and skip the cross? But his eyes were so focused on saving all of us. He kept his laser focus all of his life. His mission was to seek and save the lost, And he knew there could be no greater calling or purpose on his life as the God-man. And he didn't let the devil and all those temptations take him away. He didn't let people take him away, the good and the bad. He certainly could have, but he was single-minded on his mission, which was to seek and save the lost. And if he's our great prototype, which he is, shouldn't that be our simple single-minded focus as well? And he commanded that that of us even in Matthew 28. 
Pastor shared some points on Sunday about his own growth and perspective change that the Spirit has been working out in him. And I just want to repeat a couple of his points because uh, I can personally relate to them in my own soul too. So one thing he said was, I used to think that spiritual maturity was about me growing up. But now I know that it's about the gospel growing up in me. Unfettered, unhidden, fully bloomed, brilliant light as of Jesus Christ himself. An interesting perspective. To be sanctified, we allow the gospel to grow up in us. All our job is to get out of the way. Faith, right? Free will is involved. But that's our only part in the whole deal. And we allow, we get out of the way and allow the gospel to grow up in us instead of having the focus be us growing up. We learn what it means to be sold out for the gospel. To love Jesus Christ and to love his people so much that we don't become distracted from his calling on us, which is mainly the Great Commission. It's about getting out of the way of the gospel coming alive in us. It's a different perspective. And it's about living in the gospel reality each and every day. Pastor also said on Sunday, I used to perceive that my salvation was a historical event, something to be grateful for, of course. But now I know that my salvation is my sanctification and that my sanctification is my salvation. That's a different way of looking at it than how many of us used to look at it. Salvation, or rather sanctification, is salvation continued, is how I view it now. The story of our lives doesn't end the day we became saved. It just begins. Salvation itself just begins the day we get saved. And it continues. As Pastor said in the past, we, we're being saved every day. It's a process that he's taking us through and that we know, honestly, very little about. The supernatural part of it and what's going on in our soul soul and the things he's working out of our souls and in our souls, we know very little about. Um, And I think maybe when we're older, maybe, you know, before we go to meet the Lord, maybe we'll have a better glimpse of it. But I'm convinced, and I always think about this, There are many things he's doing right now in me that if I knew right now, I'd be shocked or um, totally surprised that that's what he's doing. I'm thinking he's doing this and he's doing that. And there's a million other things probably mixed in there. And so we can't think we, we got it figured out at all. He's working out salvation in us. He's working out the gospel in us. What that means is really hard to explain. And I don't think we we know it yet. One day we will. But we're being saved every day, as the Spirit's been telling us. And that process of being saved doesn't end until we reach heaven. So we sit back and we watch by faith the work he's doing in us who believe. And that's really what I think, you know, Pastor was getting at there. I, I know that my salvation is... My sanctification and my sanctification is my salvation. They're really one thing, one continuous thing. 
Go to 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. <clears throat> and let's see uh, the main scripture we started with on Sunday about Christ's purpose, Christ's simple, pure, laser-sharp purpose. 1 Timothy 1.12 I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Why does Paul begin that statement with, it's a trustworthy statement? Deserving full acceptance. What's our problem? We don't accept things fully by faith. He says this, what I'm about to say, deserves full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now we know that, but do we look at it with the right perspective? With that single-mindedness and that purity? That that is the mission? Or do we get hung up on other things? That statement really is the gospel in summary. The Lord's singular, pure mission should be in view as we continue to read our Bibles in context and accept the truth that we come across at face value. We saw on Sunday about perspective being very important. When reading theology, we must tap into the new creature's perspective the one that never has a problem with the plainly stated things in the Bible. Deserving full acceptance, if you will. Reading my Bible, I know, has gotten a lot easier for me over the years. Um, I always looked at it as a daunting task in a way, that I had to know everything while I was reading it. I had to understand everything while I was reading it, and I'd always stop and get stuck and not allow uh, myself to read through things and let the Spirit work it out. What does that take? Faith. Right? We stop at a verse and we say, i got to figure this out. i got to know the answer now. Where if we just kept reading by faith, we get to the end of the chapter or the next chapter, and then it's answered that very thing that we were stuck on. What did it take to, go, to keep going? It took faith and not relying on our own brilliance, our own maturity. So we talked about something on Sunday. I think this is a very important point on the board here. It really resonates with me about big-picture reading. If we read the Bible with the gospel lens, we clearly see God's doctrines along the way, the mind of Christ. However, if we read it with a doctrinal lens we run the risk of losing sight of the gospel. And I can speak from personal experience on that. You know, losing sight of the gospel and the purity and the simplicity and the love and getting so hung up in the weeds that it becomes a chore and a burden and a confusion in, in our soul. For what? Because we have to have it all figured out? 
because we have to think or act more mature than the next guy and know all the answers. And this is important because if we don't have this perspective when reading the Bible, we can lose our first love, as the church of Ephesus did in Revelation chapter 2. We can lose our first love. As in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. We risk losing sight of that, which is really part of the gospel, the gospel in continuance, if you will. So this is why pastor asked us to consider the following on the board. The nature of the early church. Jesus' ministry was focused on salvation. Being Jewish and given the Jews' part in the gospel, he often spoke keenly on topics at the forefront of their minds, which was namely, what's the kingdom all about? How do I get in? The keystone of his message was salvation, not so-called spiritual maturity. And this might seem to have come out of the blue for some of you, but this is for our benefit to reconcile this point on the board, to fully accept this reality and this truth about Jesus' ministry is for our benefit to set us free from our own striving, even spiritually. If our priority as believers is to reach spiritual maturity, then we focus on that instead of the gospel and salvation. I really believe it's one or the other, as we'll see later on. If we, again as believers, prioritize reaching spiritual maturity, then we focus on that instead of the gospel and salvation, which should be what our heart is captured by, enraptured by, occupied with. The gospel and salvation should be what we're consumed with. And we're wrongly prioritizing in our souls if Spiritual maturity is our main priority. Is that why we're here, really? Or are we here to spread the gospel and let God mature us? But we love to put things backwards, don't we? So we can take a little bit of credit and we can stratify against others. So again, the gospel lens will reveal to us the correct doctrines in the Bible as we read but a doctrinal lens might skew our pure vision of the gospel and our purpose. We also saw on Sunday that the early church wasn't hyper-categorical. Hyper-categorization runs the risk of disjointed doctrines, things that just don't fit together, and that ultimately ruins one's vision of the gospel in its purest, fullest sense. Do you remember the different ways the apostles presented the gospel throughout the book of Acts? Do you remember we went into that a few months ago, probably? Like, for example, Acts chapter 2, 3, 10, and 17, and how each apostle in each presentation of the gospel given was different. Same gospel, but they were quite different. And that's what this point in the board reminded me of. The apostles, they were focused on giving the gospel, number one, and following the Spirit's lead on what to say to that particular person or crowd in front of them. They weren't 
creating doctrinal structures and notebooks and theology books. They were focused on the gospel. They were continuing, crazy as it sounds, Jesus' mission. They were continuing his message. What was it? Go out and seek and save the lost. Give the gospel. Tell people to repent and believe. So we can actually get things backwards in our, in our souls, even, even with quote-unquote good intentions. Why? Probably because of covert arrogance sneaking into our souls and, and allowing the flesh to get involved in the spiritual life. I think we all do it to some degree. But what was the pattern of Paul's ministry, for example, with both Jews and Gentiles? In Acts 20, 21, in the NIV, he said, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. That was his pattern when given the gospel to either Jews or Greeks, right? That was, he, he gave it to both. He was called to the Gentiles, but he started with the Jews. And he said to both of them, in any situation, I call people to turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Does that look like hyper-doctrinalization to you or hyper-categorization? Is he getting into mature doctrines here? Or is he passing on the proper, clear, pure message? So not only were the apostles not into hyper-categorizing doctrines. They were solely focused on the gospel, and they followed the Spirit's lead in how he wanted the gospel presented each time. The apostles were concerned about getting the gospel right and giving it clearly to those that were in front of them. And they were concerned with defending the gospel and, and, and presenting the, it and affirming it, but it was all centered around the gospel. It's pretty clear the more and more and more you read your Bibles. So the Lord's been bringing everything into a sharper, sharper focus for us, I believe, on this point. What's really important? What's the clear top priority for us as believers? What's plainly stated in the scriptures about being saved? That's the top priority. That was the Lord's point, and that should be our point of focus. On the board, in Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And as Pastor mentioned, we don't see a similar declaration by the Lord Jesus Christ about spiritual maturity as you read through the Gospels. Why is that? What's the top priority? Is it us advancing, or is it all about him and sharing what he's done for mankind? Isn't it his job to get us there, to maturity? As Pastor said on Sunday, something like this, it's immature to focus on maturity. If you actually want to be mature and that's your preoccupation, then it really ends up becoming about self. But God's like, don't worry, I'll get you there. Go do my work. Go share the good news. Stop making more of it or more of yourself than you should be. Think about it. 
Many people live only a short time on this earth. Many don't live a full life as most people expect to live. They don't have time to grow to maturity. What's God's concern? Let's get them saved before they have to face me. And if they believe in Christ, they're in heaven for all eternity right now. Many people that lived a very short life, many children that passed before reaching adulthood. What's the priority? Where are they right now for all eternity? Many people in this world are mentally handicapped as well, to one degree or another. What about them? Are they supposed to reach spiritual maturity to, I don't know, validate God or validate themselves? Or are they just hopefully going to get the gospel right with the faith of a child, which is an advantage to someone with some mental handicaps? To have that simple faith of a child that God is looking for, as we're going to see coming up later. God wants to save them. God wants to save everybody to Satan's dismay and bring them to heaven, not regarding their ability or wisdom or intelligence. Bring them to heaven by his grace because they were humble enough to trust in him. The Lord came to seek and save the lost, and in that salvation, all is accomplished by His grace. And what's our goal? To live in that salvation more and more, to live in that reality, and to share it along the way. Jesus' opening phrase in His ministry is very interesting, and it's something I never noticed before. Uh, go to Matthew 4, verse 17. <clears throat> and as you're turning there, I want to remind you that in Mark chapter 1, Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. But in Matthew 4, he says it a little bit differently in his opening words to his public ministry. Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, in Mark chapter 1, he said, Repent and believe the gospel. Those were his first public words. So, what's the focus? The kingdom of heaven and the gospel. And repenting so you can get there. How do I get in the kingdom? That was the main concern of the Jews. Look at verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So we saw on Sunday... Jesus' commission from the Father, which he passed on to the apostles. Fishing implies catching. The focus is not on fisheries, where fish are all matured. It's on catching souls, saving them, 
Hence the great commission he gives his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's a pretty simple focus, isn't it? It's like Jesus is telling us to go do one thing. Go out there and fish. That's all I want you to do. That's what I'm going to make you into, great fishermen of men. And thank God it is that single-minded of a calling upon our lives. Because otherwise we'd get all jumbled up, right, and add to it and get confused and prioritize wrongly. His life of saving others then came to a point of critical discernment at the Garden of Gethsemane when he had to make that decision to go forward and finish what he started. As we saw on Sunday, Jesus was born to die. He came to save sinners, and he followed through at the cross. But throughout his life, his audience was in shambles, a disoriented mess. His focus was to call his sheep to himself, not somehow to mature them. Given the vastness of his ministry, the physicality of it even, he had much to do regarding the simplicity of the gospel. That was his whole life for three years, including his death. Go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus was concerned about the degree of um, lostness. Is that a phrase? How severely his people were lost. That's what he was concerned about. He was upset about this because these were his children that were led astray and confused. So look at Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. What was he doing? Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The calling was simple. It was to go harvest. It was, look at all these lost sheep right here. They're, they're lost. They're distressed. They're just like sheep without a shepherd wandering around, wondering where the water is. And Jesus is like, guys, this is why we're here. Look at the harvest. It's plentiful. We need more workers to go harvest. How difficult is it to go harvest a crop? When it's sitting out there in the field, already grown, and your job is to go collect it. That's our job. That was his calling, that was his heart, and that's what he's passing on to us. Go care for the people. Go out and make disciples. My sheep are lost and they need to be found and guided to safety. Remember, sheep literally can't find water on their own. That's us in case you had a big head for a minute, right? That's us. And he came and saved us, 
He came to get our attention. He convicted us by the Spirit, thank God. And he's doing that, approaching everybody the same way. And he says, okay, you, got, you, you get to go help now. I saved you. You get to go help me now. I don't need you, but I'm going to let you go harvest for me. So simple. Even the apostles, after the Lord ascended into heaven, were focused on saving souls and protecting the gospel. Peter was a great example of this. Uh, go to 1 Peter 2, verse 21, which we saw on Sunday. 1 Peter 2, 21. <clears throat> Peter was a great example of this calling of saving souls, and he wrote this to the Jews. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. Talking about the Jews as a people. You were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned. Or actually it means to be converted. You've been converted. You've come. You've turned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Talking to believers. So we talked on Sunday about mature reading of the Bible. The central theme in the Bible is the gospel. There's no doubt about that. If you have any doubts about that at this point, you're probably not reading your Bible enough. The central person is clearly Jesus Christ. The more mature we are as believers, the more we will read every passage of Scripture in light of these two truths. The gospel and Jesus Christ. And every passage will amplify them if we read it that way we don't forget the big picture. I believe the more you read the Bible with the simple view of a child, the more mature you are. We'll see that coming up. It really doesn't make sense, but I believe that's maturity. Then there was John. Let's go to John 12:44, the apostle whom Jesus loved. And one thing about John, he, he had an incredible love for Jesus and he revealed the heart of Jesus in his writings. I mean, they all did. It's all the Word of God. But John, you can see his heart on his sleeve almost, you know, as he's writing. John, John 12, 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings 
has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as, as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Look at the Lord's heart. It was dedicated to seeking and saving the lost, period. There's one more example of it. And John learned this from him and carried the torch, so to speak. Bringing people to the light was the great priority of Jesus and the apostles. And so it must be for us. It's pretty obvious. So regarding spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity is actually an issue of faith as a function of humility. It's not an issue of knowledge and intelligence and how much you know or how intellectual you can be with the, with the Word of God and, and how much Greek you can memorize. It's about faith. It's about believing what we read. That's a function of maturity. The Pharisees' example proves that intellect has nothing to do with maturity. God's righteousness is only satisfied by faith given to us as believers. And he'll give us more and more the more we ask and the more humble we are before him. But this is a big change in my soul, for one, I can say. Spiritual maturity is about growing in faith. And that can only come by remaining humble. It's not about having the most scripture memorized for your church functions and impressing each other. So the road to sanctification is that, again, faith. It's growing up into our salvation, growing up in the gospel. So we also saw on Sunday we need to get our focus right. The idea of spiritual maturity has been blown way out of proportion with some teaching against divine wisdom even, as in Ecclesiastes 12.12. Jesus' ministry and his great commission for believers was not focused on so-called maturity, but rather saving souls, making disciples, making believers. It's overwhelming. If you had to you know, go through the Gospels and put a percentage on it, how much was Jesus talking about the gospel and salvation? How much was he talking about maturity? What do you think? What do you think it would be? Such a huge percentage talking about the gospel. So do we have the top priority correct in our own souls? I believe it's the flesh that focuses too heavily on spiritual maturity and learning, 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 maybe even memorizing, uh, having Knowledge being the end goal, when knowledge is commanded of us to draw closer to Him. Knowledge, we're told to come to the knowledge of Christ. Why? To increase our faith. Not for anything else. And I see this when I travel abroad. Um, I think a focus too heavy on spiritual maturity can harm 
our calling to live in the gospel. And when I have you know, been in different countries with different pastors and maybe those that aren't so technical with the word of God, what I see in them is a love for Jesus and a great desire to go spread the word in the villages. And I see something in them that I don't really see in this country. Why is it? Is it because us smart Americans have to get the upper hand and have all the knowledge and figure it all out? Therefore, nullifying the faith of a child, which I see in these other countries with these men of God that just love God and love his people. We have a lot to learn from them, and they think they have a lot to learn from me when I go over there. But it's really the opposite. Why does maturity get blown out of proportion by some Christians, in this country anyway? I think it's because it's an opportunity to stratify and compare well against others. And we won't say this. I'm not, I'm not saying that anybody, including myself, goes around saying this in the past. This is why I want to reach maturity. No, no, no. It's a very subtle, wrong motivation. And you don't even see it until someone points it out to you, or years later, when you maybe finally become more humble. You don't even see it. What did the apostles fall into at times? during their walk with Jesus. Who's the greatest of us? Right? Isn't that the same as who's the most mature? Was their focus on maturity wrongly? I would say yes. What did Jesus say to their question, who's the greatest? Be like this little child and be a servant. It's not what they wanted to hear. Right? That's the opposite of what, what they, where they thought they were heading. Let's look at a few examples of this. But I think we have to ask ourselves, have we been walking in the same mistake of the apostles? Maybe you didn't say the same exact words. Maybe you didn't even put it into words. But have we been walking in the same mistake? Go to Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Mark nine thirty-three. And we're going to go through a few different passages here on this topic here of being the greatest. But don't be familiar with these verses. I know you've seen them before, most of you. Think about how this relates to being preoccupied with spiritual maturity. All right? As we read this. Mark 9, 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. <laughs> what do think about it? Why did they keep silent? Guess what? They should be embarrassed. Right? They kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, here's gentle Jesus, right? Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. What a visual aid, huh? I believe the more we read Scripture with the faith of a child, 
and with the attitude of a servant, the more mature we become. But that doesn't make sense to us. But God's ways are not our ways. Our ways pervert the pure life of love that God offers us to live in. That's what we do. And we, we're just like the apostles. Do the same thing. And Jesus says, here's how simple it is. Let me remind you. Here's how simple it is. Look at Mark 10, verse 13. <clears throat> and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Now, why did the disciples rebuke them? Why don't they just mind their own business? No, really, because that's a strong word, isn't it? Rebuke. So you've got these parents bringing their kids to Jesus and the disciples rebuking them, saying, don't do that, or whatever, right? Rebuke's a strong word, so I had a little attitude there. But think about the immaturity here. We're talking about maturity, right? Think about the immaturity. Why, why are the disciples rebuking the children from coming? Are they saying something with some stratification in their soul? Like Jesus doesn't have time for children. He's too busy making us into something. Why else would you rebuke children from approaching Jesus? He doesn't have time for you guys. You're not there yet. You're not mature enough yet. You're not old enough yet. What did Jesus say in verse 14? When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Again, a great picture. But Jesus turns the tables on them. Maturity, in Jesus' eyes, was opposite of the disciples' eyes. Look at Mark 10.35. Mark 10.35. It's pretty interesting that we have all these examples about this, by the way. A lot of examples about the disciples being the greatest, so to speak. Mark 10.35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. I know, huh? And notice Jesus doesn't say here, okay, I believe you're able. He doesn't say that. He says, okay, you're going to be baptized with my baptism then. You want it? <laughs> you got it. So they said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with James and John. So, here's gentle Jesus coming again, calling them to himself, like a father would to his children, right? Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The quote-unquote mature realize their nothingness without him. And they want to serve others even more out of gratitude for being saved. That's what makes somebody quote-unquote mature. The great gratitude for just being saved and living life in that gratitude. It's not what the apostles thought. It's not what we think. In God's eyes, that's maturity and that's greatness. Finally, on this topic, go to Matthew 18, verse 1. Matthew 18, verse 1. So have we been making the same mistake that the apostles made? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we are called to a higher calling and not a calling that the flesh thinks to be high. It's quite the opposite. We're called to fully recognize our humble position and to live in the reality of being saved. Just simple, pure gratitude of being saved. And that's the way to walk by faith. That's what the Lord is pleased with, that faith of a child. So instead of competing and comparing, we are simply overwhelmed with gratitude for his gift of salvation, and we live in that humility. That's living in the gospel reality. And that brings us to maturity on his playing field, on his terms. He does all the work anyway. We get out of the way and just have the faith of a child. It says, thank you, Dad. What do you want me to do today? You want me to go harvest the wheat over there? Okay. Awesome. Sounds cool. And that is our simple heart and objective. Where do we get it from? Jesus. Who did he pass it to? The apostles, even though at times they made mistakes. Same mission, same objective. Seek and save the lost. On the board in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, It says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to what? Salvation. Not to maturity, not to sanctification even. I want you to grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So the flesh wants to stratify and show itself smarter than the rest. And this is 
what we get from the clause of religion. And religion can exist in any church and in anybody's heart. Probably in everybody's heart. We see it most clearly with the Pharisees, which Pastor brought up on Sunday. They took God's perfect law, and they added like 400 more rules and regulations to it. Nice. You guys are smart. You mean, i got to keep all those too? Yeah, and you know what? We can, you can't. I mean, this is the juvenile way of thinking that's going on, but said with big words, right? And said with an air about them. And we're not innocent of this. Nobody really is. So they really built themselves up into something, so to speak. You might know where that quote comes from. But that's really what they did. They built themselves up into something and then set themselves apart. So we got all these Jewish believers and they all seem to love God and they're following the law. We're going to make some extra laws so that we can be over here on on this pedestal next to them. And just so they see that we're a little bit above them. And then we're going to make them try to follow and come to us. And it's all done in the name of God. Pretty sick, huh? But the Lord Jesus, the only people he got angry with, really angry, was the Pharisees. Because why? They're adding this religious garbage to the calling he was putting on them which was a calling of grace and humility, right, and faith. And they were interrupting, and they got their claws in to spoil the pure, right? Spoil the pure gospel. The Lord had joy in reaching children and and in reaching those with that type of humility. Go to Luke 10, verse 21. And we see the Lord's joy about this very fact. Luke 10.21. And you know, how many times did he say, I'm going to talk in parables so you don't hear what I'm saying and you don't understand what I'm saying. He purposely said that because these were the people, like the Pharisees, who didn't really want to know the truth. He's like, okay, because you're not humble, because you don't really want to know, and you're here playing some kind of a game, I'm going to confuse you. And that was grace in action. So you don't think you got it falsely. Look at Luke 10, 21. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. How cool is God? You've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way is well-pleasing in your sight. The faith of a child is humility. And a lot of religious people just don't have it. They're not ready for the truth that will set them free. So Jesus rejoiced in that. And so should we. That's why we shouldn't cast our pearls before swine. When you encounter people that act like they want to hear the truth, but you can tell they're, they're asking questions in arrogance or asking questions just to prove you wrong. You can tell when someone's not really sincerely looking for the truth. You can tell they're not humble. You can tell there's a little bit of covert arrogance in their questions. 
And the words of their questions seem like good questions, but their heart behind it, you can tell they're just looking to catch you. What did Jesus do? I'm not going to give you the answer you want. Don't do it. Rejoice in the humble when they are, are, are before you and want the truth. Don't cast your pearls before swine for those that don't want the truth. Because actually it's just going to hurt them anyway. So we also talked about on Sunday, as we uh, get close to closing here, geesh, <laughs> we talked about how John combated Gnosticism, which was another form of the flesh attempting to uh, make an issue out of stratification and what pastor called being in the know, having this little pedestal on the side of everybody else that's good religious people, but being a little bit higher, or having the secrets. That's really what the flesh wants to do to be special, and to figure out the secrets that nobody else knows. It's so evil. But that's what the flesh does. So Pastor talked about in-the-know in garbage, quote-unquote. Historically, the flesh has hijacked the simple, pure things of the gospel for the purpose of self-elevation, self-separation, and self-righteousness. The Pharisees and the Gnostics are examples of this Today, we have other elitist ideologies in many churches today that have hyper-focus on spiritual maturity in the absence of having even the gospel full or accurate. That's the shame of it. Priorities. So, let me pick a place to close. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, If I don't have love, then I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And this is what religious people are missing. Religious people that stratify themselves, that intellectualize things, that want to appear a certain way, appear mature, let's say. Um, if that's their modus operandi, that's their priority, that's their motivation then they lose out on love. They miss it. They lose their first love even that they had at the, on the day of salvation. And now they're trapped in this religion. But the Bible says love is the great sign or evidence of even saving faith. We talked about the great lit litmus test. The hallmark of true love is a base desire to love others and to live for others. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The Spirit will assure you of your faith by revealing to you his love in you. So it's back to basics. Go to 1 John 3.14. 1 John 3.14. And this is one of two verses in John that tell us how we can know we're saved. 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So we know we've passed out of death into eternal life because we have love for the brethren. We actually care about others, not just about ourselves. It's a change in the heart that has been given you 
at the point of trusting in Christ. Look at 1 John 4.13. 1 John 4.13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. So, we close with the Apostle Paul on Sunday. And we read Philippians chapter 1, and we saw all the focus on the gospel. And I want you to just ask yourself this question as we close and we read one more passage. Why did God use such an intelligent man like Paul, such a scholar, a Bible scholar, why did God use someone like him to focus on the simplicity and purity of the gospel? He was an intellectual giant, Paul was. He was smarter than all of the other Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Why did God use him to even tell the people, I don't want to use big words because I'm going to spoil it? Go to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. And let's read this passage through as we close. And at the same time, I want you to think about why, why did God choose someone like Pastor Ed, who is a very smart guy. <laughs> He's got a high IQ given by God. He has an engineering background. He would do very well in, in getting complicated with the Word of God and intellectualizing it and making it really sound impressive. You know, making it something that would confuse a lot of people. Why does someone like him, why is he assigned to this pulpit and stressing the simplicity of the gospel and that we're off track if we're not on that track? Just think about that. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. Sounds like the Pharisees, doesn't it? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many wise, not many mighty rather, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man can boast before God. For by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 
so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now look at 1 Corinthians 2.1. What does Paul go on to say? When I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That said by a genius in his day and age. So I think it comes down to this on the board. It's one or the other. We have to choose. We can't have the simplicity and purity of the gospel truth while complicating and intellectualizing the word. You can't, you can't have both. If we hyper-focus on spiritual maturity and technicality and memorizing Greek, well, you're hyper-focusing on the wrong thing. We should be hyper-focusing on the simplicity and purity of the gospel, as Paul just said, and put aside intellectualism. And let God make us mature. How? By faith. Not by knowledge, by faith. We can't have the simplicity and purity of the gospel truth while complicating and intellectualizing the word. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. May it never be. And may we continue on this road of simplicity and purity that Christ has called us to. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful clarity and single-mindedness that your Son presented to us and your Word presents to us. Father, help us embrace, help us fully accept your calling on our lives to live in the gospel and to share it and to share the love that you showed us with others. We ask, Father, that you help us bring this word out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.